0: All right, thank you for joining us, everyone. Uh, This is the Creating Your First Podcast, Responsibly Telling Stories About Racial Equity, Hate and Extremism Breakout Session. Thank you for joining us. We're we're really grateful to be here with you today. Uh, Before we get started, just a little bit of housekeeping here. We have a a couple minutes here, so um, please uh, add your name to the chat tell us where you're uh, zooming in from and maybe give us a fun fact about yourself. I think one of the ones that I've heard recently that's been really helpful is, uh, what's one new thing you've learned during quarantine or uh, one uh, really great act of kindness that you've seen and mine's usually something about my sons. So I would say uh, my 13 year old uh, made his little brother, who's six, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and I didn't have to ask him to do it. He just did it all on his own, just out of the kindness, out of, out of the kindness of his heart. Um, and, and that's usually not what he does. He's he's you know too important and too big to to play with a six year old these days. But that was very kind and sweet to me. So, please add uh, where you're calling from, who you are, and, and something you want to share. Another reminder, uh, the chat is here, but we also have a QA and um, a option here. And so if you have any questions for us as the panelists, um, please add them into the Q&A section. And it has a great feature that allows you to upvote. So when we get to the questions, um, we can see kind of the ones that are burning for everyone at the top. So definitely as we go along, we want you guys to Use the chat to talk to each other, to share insights, to, to um, have a conversation. It's definitely a conversation space for you along the way. And also, don't forget to add your questions to Q&A. All right. We've got some people here from Detroit, DC, also where I am. Amherst, Massachusetts, uh, Massachusetts is Where I hail from, so hello, hope it's not too cold there. California, San Francisco, all right. Teaching myself to sew and make jewelry during the pandemic, love that. I learned how to cook many things. Marzipan, impressive. Amazing how much work you can get done amid the shrieks of a five-year-old and two-year-old. I know that world. (laughs) Hello from Brazil. Welcome. Learning how to weave with a lap loom. You guys are much more ambitious than I am. Learning how to to cook uh, simple meals is is on my to-do list. Kansas City. All right, we're just at about four minutes past, so we're gonna go ahead and get started. Please keep adding your info into the chat and keep uh, letting us know who you are and where you're calling you call from. All right, so I am Janine Williamson. I'm so grateful to be here with you today. I am an engagement director with Atlantic 57, which is the consultant and creative agency of the Atlantic. And in my role, I work specifically with nonprofits, um, as well as large foundations and universities and media. Um, I am really passionate about helping all of our clients um, create strategies around Uh, urgent social issues, uh, deepening the connections that they have uh, within their organization and without. Um, And previously, I was at NPR for almost a decade, and I worked on the digital side. And I've had the wonderful pleasure of working with Leisha Brooks and her team at Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, Leisha is the chief of staff for SPLC, where she provides counsel to senior leadership assists with strategic planning and works with people from across the organization to ensure SPLC success. Uh, Previously, Leisha also served as the SPLC Chief Workplace Transformation Officer, Director of the SPLC Civil Rights Memorial Center, and SPLC's Outreach Director as well. Welcome, Leisha. We also have Jillian White here. She is the writer and deputy editor at The Atlantic. Uh, she covers business economics with a focus on inequality, wealth, the financial sector, and economic policy. Prior to joining The Atlantic in 2014, she was an editor at the personal finance magazine Kiplinger. Uh, White's work has also appeared in publications such as The New York Times, Bloomberg, and Market Watch, just to name a few. And we also are welcoming Catherine Wells. Uh, She is also from the Atlantic. She is the executive producer of podcasts. Uh, Her work has been featured on uh, the New, York, the Newger, New Yorker Radio Hour, Radio Labs More Perfect, Freakonomics Radio, and Gimlet Media's Every Little Thing. Also, uh, several other places like uh, the National Geographic, Bloomberg Digital, Science Friday, and many more. Welcome, panelists. Thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thank you. Help- Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. To help us guide the conversation today, so you guys can have a little bit of uh, an agenda to know how we're going to talk through um, this kind of heavy podcast conversation is we're going to start by really getting uh, understanding about How did you get started? I know um, just from working with many of our clients at The Atlantic, um, especially on the nonprofit side, we've had several uh, people come to us and say, should I start a podcast? If I should, how does this align with my strategy? Um, How do I I actually move this forward? So we'll talk about getting started and uh, give you guys an understanding of what to uh, expect, how to talk through things at the organizational level, and also um, discuss some challenges that you might find along the way. Uh, The second section is going to be talking about putting it all together. So once you decide that you're going to move forward with this idea, Uh, What are some things that you wanna start thinking about around your storytelling? Also uh, technology, um, your your host, um, should you have one or not? Um, And then we'll talk more deeply about the power of audio for storytelling um, and we'll conclude with talking about capturing voices, um, especially um, in relation to these great podcasts uh, when it comes to vulnerable or, or marginalized communities. And we'll, we'll wrap with some key takeaways and then open it up for, for questions and discussion. So uh, before we we jump right into the conversation, I wanted to start with us actually taking a listen to um, an episode of Sounds Like Hate. So we'll start there first.
1: Listen to the new podcast series, Sounds Like Hate. I see my students with Nazi symbols on their hands. I'm hearing an uptick in the N-word. I just was like, what is happening? We take you inside a high school caught in the crosshairs of racism and a battle ripping their community apart. I potentially have a fire here that can devolve into violence. Will students at Randolph Union High School in Vermont raise a Black Lives Matter flag? When I see that flag and I read it, it tells me my life don't matter because I'm not black. I see all of your black power but where's white power. And will the school change their beloved mascot, a galloping ghost, resembling a KKK night. Do I really want to be throwing more rocket fuel on it at this point in time? Independent journalism, subscribe and listen to Sounds Like Hate, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere you get your favorite podcasts.
0: That was uh, certainly a great introduction to the podcast in the first two episodes. Um, you know, after hearing that, I know when when I think about some conversations that I've had, um, you know, with SPLC, with other clients, there's been so many reasons to kind of go down the podcast uh, route, you know, there's thinking about reaching uh, new audiences, there is, um, you know, thinking about uh, reaching more diverse audiences, Nicole Hannah-Jones said it Great last night during her keynote when she discussed talking about how the New York Times um, also created a podcast for the 1619 Project and how she really wanted it to reach her family back home and the people that don't read the New York Times or don't have the New York Times in their bodega down the street um, and then there's, of course, the monetary potential. So I know, um, you know, can, I, I'm not at NPR anymore, but I can never uh, lose that NPR in, in my heart. Um, and recently this year, they talked about how um, for the first time, they're going to have more money from podcasts than from their radio shows. So for all the communicators contemplating this right now here on the line, um, and after hearing that amazing end product, what the result was um, when you finally made it to launching Sounds Like Hate. Alicia, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started and um, what was your organization's original posture on podcasts?
1: Mm. Thank you, Janine. Let me thank you and Atlantic 57 first for helping the Southern Poverty Law Center get to this point. Um, you've really been tremendous in terms of helping us editorially just across the organization. So thank you for that. And thank you for having us today. And I just have to say, listening to, to that clip, it just, it really makes me so proud and um, really makes the journey worthwhile. Uh, it, we're a nonprofit organization that is, has, has ex- existed for more than 50 years, and we're in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, our Our senior leadership team and our board or older folks and so convincing them to to have a podcast really began some years ago when we had to have the conversation about reducing print products period right and that there was a better way for us to tell the story and to reach reach people on um, the southern poverty law center as a social justice nonprofit organization, we communicate a lot with our supporters and donors and want to get the message out about our work to a broad audience. In particular, uh, Sounds Like Hate and our work around hate and extremism was primarily um, produced for law enforcement and Homeland Security or people who are engaged in um, tracking and monitoring hate groups as as we are. We began to recognize that we needed to tell that story more broadly So we began to have conversations about how to do that. And as you just alluded to narrative narrative form storytelling is really um, a wonderful way to do that. You can't ensure that people are are getting the whole story uh, based on on the written word. And so to be able to tell this story and to hear hear it told in a different way. It's just, it's it's pretty amazing, but it took time. We, we, we walked them through it. We went through the budget thing. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it's going to cost more. So we have to have that conversation. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of explain to folks that this will pay off in the end, especially if you're in a nonprofit. Um, so it took a couple of years, but I'm just so proud that, that we got to this place.
0: Jillian, I know this is not the Atlantic's first podcast, but it is the first narrative podcast. So was there any uh, mindset change that had to happen or or buy-in that had to happen on on the Atlantic side? Yeah, I think
2: absolutely the shift from kind of talkish shows that we have done in the past. So if you have ever listened to an Atlantic podcast before, Floodlines, The Ticket, which is our politics podcast, Crazy Genius with Derek Thompson, um, or Once Upon a Time, The Atlantic Interview, which was obviously an interview show with our editor in chief, uh, Jeff Goldberg. The setup for those is very different. It's kind of Q and A. They're a little quicker moving, um, slightly less kind of deep narrative into kind of one big story. But this for us was, a narrative podcast for us is, The most exciting expression, perhaps in audio, of the work that we do. You know, we've been a magazine that focuses on 10,000 word pieces for almost 164 years now. Um, So, dovetailing that into the audio space, narrative makes so much sense for us, where you're able to take one story and really get into every nook and cranny, do a ton of character development, um, and really think through what is the, what is the thing that we want to say here? What do we want our audience to leave with after several episodes? Um, And that's harder, I think, when you're just doing, when you're doing slightly quicker hits. Um, And Catherine can obviously talk more to that because she is kind of the genius behind it. But in terms of thinking through strategically the difference between the podcast that we had, which we spun up pretty scrappily (laughs) a few years ago, versus narrative, which requires just a immense amount of effort and an immense amount of investment and thinking through and scripting and effort. It definitely kind of took a jump. You know, there's a reason that we had three kind of talk-ish shows before we had a single narrative podcast Um, and it's because it is a little bit of a mind shift and it requires just such a labor of love to put together and so much thinking um, and story contemplation and clarity of focus. Um, and again, investment, I really can't say it enough, um, that it definitely takes some convincing and a real understanding of who are we trying to reach, what is the story we're trying to tell, and what are the resources that we're willing to put towards it.
0: That's great. I know that when we discuss podcasts with our clients, we're often thinking about, um, you know, start with the strategy. Does this fit with your editorial and distribution strategy? Um, how will it connect to your organizational goals and your audience? Do you have that capacity, the capabilities, and the resources to actually do it well? And just thinking about it, you know, on average, it takes four times the amount of time to create a podcast than it actually does to listen to it. Um, So maybe we can move a little bit on to actually talking about some of that putting it all together piece. Um, If you, you know, don't have the resources um, to properly put a a podcast together, it may not be worth the effort. So what's the reality? Um, I know (laughs) you had a lot of experience in this. Um, If you can tell us, uh, Catherine, what's the reality like? Sure,
3: sure. I think, you know, um, even for people who do this as their career all the time, it's often shocking how much work it is. <laughs> so um, I-, I think a thing that anyone who puts together a podcast often realizes is just, it's a lot, it's a lot more work and it's a lot more in depth than um, it seems from the outside. I think, um, you know, you, especially with more conversational shows, even those take a lot of work, uh, a lot of unseen work and I think part of the trick of uh, part of the reason the medium is effective, but also part of the reason it's a little bit deceptive is you know a great podcast feels like you're just listening to people talk you know it feels really seamless, um, but the work that went into making it feel that way um, is kind of invisible so I think the the thing I would say you know it, it's important to think about um, You know, just realize that it's not going to be an easy thing, um, no matter which format you're going for. And it's also really important to work with people who have some experience doing it. Um, That'll actually make the process a lot more efficient um, and increase the chances of success. Um, So, yeah, it very much depends on what format you're going for. But um, expertise and appropriate budgeting are are the places to start.
0: Yeah, I know, Alicia, you mentioned, um, you know, getting the budget and and working internally. Um, When you were were doing that, um, I know when we talked previously, you also talked about how you work to get buy-in and and to bring in uh, people from across the organization. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that impacted putting it all together?
1: Well, thank you. As, as Catherine mentioned, I mean, it really requires an investment and if you want a quality product, you're going to have to go to people who are experienced in, in, in the field. Right. And so it was convincing, convincing our leadership and board of that. And it's, it I I would imagine it's quite different for a nonprofit because, you know, resources or are are limited in lots of different ways. So the convincing uh, might be a, a, a more of a climb. Um, in the nonprofit space, but and and also at the Southern Poverty Law Center, we're you know we're gifted with lots thought, of talented people, lots of talented writers, and and um, again in nonprofit, you, you you tend to think that you could do it all. Oh, well, they, you're a good storyteller, you're a good writer. Uh, that piece, that long form piece you did was fabulous. I'm sure you could turn it into something. So we had to convince them that we needed to go out and seek and support independent journalists and, and have independent producers. So feel so fortunate to have landed on the two women and there were two women of color, we were intentional about that. And we, we wanted to kind of create balance and equity all, all the way around. So Geraldine Moriba and Jamila Pasima who were experienced in, in the field and we, we gave them a lot of independence and put a lot of trust in them. Uh, and then, in turn, that worked that worked in our favor, where we could come back with little sound bites, little clips that would convince, um, you know, our senior team further. And then the next thing you know, they were like all in, um, and now everyone's all about it, like it was their idea. and And that's exactly how you want it to go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's great. I love that. Everyone wants to take credit now. Um, can Can we talk a little bit about? Uh, uh, whether to have a host or not to have a host, so these are both narrative podcasts. Um, you know, where did the hosts fall in, and why is it important to have that that narration? Um, you know, for especially for for this type of topic and story.
1: Well, for for us, I think it's super important to have to have the host kind of listen to the story and be able to ask the, the right questions. Um, one of the things that we discovered with the, with the piece, Not Okay, that, that you heard featured earlier um, about the high schools, that you have hosts who are interviewing folks and they can ask the right questions and set up the intersections that we were looking for. So it allowed us to explore further intersections that we didn't even think were going to be there. Um, and they work to establish trust and it just, it takes SPLC out of the middle but it helps it helps them be better storytellers, um, and it helps the, the the people that are being interviewed really um, highlight what it is that, that 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 needs to be told. Of course, I think you know it all depends on having you know professional hosts and hosts who know how to facilitate conversation, know when to step in and know when to step out. And again, that's 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 why you need kind of you know a professional to do that.
0: Catherine or, or Jillian, um, I know Van is the the voice <laughs> narrating this experience for Floodlines. Can you talk to us a little bit about deciding on a, a narrative podcast and, and um, who that voice should be for the Atlantic?
3: Sure, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, so Van Newkirk is a staff writer at the Atlantic. He covers um, for years. He's been covering all of the issues that ended up in the podcast, climate change race the south um politics he's interested in all of these issues and the idea actually came from him so i mean in that sense it was very obvious who the host was because it was his idea but i will say i mean i think podcasts are such a personal um medium in a way i i you know the texture of someone's voice it's it's just there's an intimacy to it people always talk about the intimacy of audio and it's because you're listening to someone speak there's all of this sort of information you're getting, the emotional content, and nuance you're getting just from listening to their voice. So I think, um, you know, Van had, had not done a podcast before. So this was a situation where, you know, we actually did use a writer, um, though I agree, Alicia, that, you know, it's not, it's not the same kind of work. Um, but yeah, I think thinking about who is the right guide for the listener, to this material, um, it's not just about communicating information. It's about who is going to kind of create the kind of connection and be the listener's guide to the story, and that's that's the way we thought about it.
0: I love that. I love that that you know having a guide can really bring out um, different pieces of the story in a powerful way. Um, how did you find the right voices to elevate? You know, how did you? get the voices that you needed, um, especially in, in telling these stories that are so powerful when you hear people speak from their own experience. How did you actually source and find the people um, and what was important to that process?
3: Um, for us on Floodlines, it was a pretty lengthy process. We spent almost a year on the um, on the production, which is actually not the, the longest I've ever heard of for a thing like this, but um, The, um, we ended up, uh, you know, this is, there was such a place-based story, obviously, that we ended up focusing on New Orleans and the impact of the flooding there. Um, Although, of course, Hurricane Katrina, if you're not familiar, Floodlines is a, is a podcast about the uh, aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, Um, that we spent a lot of time there, but we also got to know people. We felt like, you know, it wasn't going to work, even though it's a story of national interest, obviously, like this matters to everyone. It was not going to work us just kind of swooping in and interviewing people and leaving. So we ended up partnering with a local reporter um, who had covered, you know, has covered uh, these things for years to really connect us to people who had um, really personal stories that you may have not heard of, You, you may have not heard from You know, definitely you haven't heard from these people before. They haven't been interviewed before. They didn't write a book about it, you know. Um, So we wanted to focus on that personal experience for our particular story. And that just
0: meant um,
3: finding a local partner who really knew the story very well.
0: Same thing for you, for you, Alicia. I know, you know, the first episode, um, you know, talks about these they're high school students and you know you have to have a lot of trust to tell a story of someone at that age to tell the story that is powerful that is talking about hate how did how did you get that trust how did you find these peoples and and, and find these stories um and and really get them to a place where they felt like this was the right way for them to share it
1: Well, because of our work, we we knew what had happened at that high school, and this was like, this was last winter prior to this current moment of racial reckoning when the students um, sought to, to um, lift the Black Lives Matter. So we had that kind of in the back of our minds and talked to the producers host about it. And they thought it it might be interesting. So they went to Vermont and embedded themselves and spent time at the school, especially I'm sure you can appreciate with with high school students. You need to you need to spend time, not just the students, the principal talking to other community members really seeking to understand all of the dynamics um, that were that were taking place in that community before they had an idea of as to how they wanted to tell the story right they they took the time to to listen and then let the story um, come as a result of, of that and the the relation the, the the investment of time and resources produced this this excellent story that is that personal inside look that you just won't get by dipping in and out as as Catherine alluded to you have to kind of really spend some time there, and 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 show some interest in all of uh, everyone's perspective. Particularly difficult, I think, around this issue of um, hate and extremism, and in um, you know a majority white school in Vermont. Period. Talking about Black Lives Matters, uh, it's also important to to make sure that you hear all voices. So. I think spending the time and making the investment in the community and showing that they had a genuine, we have a genuine interest in them and how they were, they were um, uh, navigating that situation was key.
2: Janine, I think you were on mute.
0: There we go. We're going to shift over and uh, go to actually listening to a soundbite from um, from the experience that you put together, Catherine, with Floodlines and hear uh, just what that storytelling sounded like um, from someone who, who was there.
1: When I came into the inside of my house, it was just a catastrophe. Um, Everything was topsy-turvy. It was mud. It just it just, it just smelled like rotten, something rotten. Um, I looked up and I could see the sky because the parts of my roof were completely gone. Nothing was really salvageable.
2: Alice Craft Kearney was back in the city, too. Her house was in bad shape. Her mother's house in the Lower Ninth Ward was destroyed. Before Katrina... Alice had been a nurse at Charity Hospital for almost 20 years. Charity had been a landmark for black New Orleanians. It had been around since the 1700s, and that's where lots of older folks in the city were born. It was a safety net hospital. They cared for a lot of poor folks without insurance, and it was the only place lots of them could get mental health care. Charity didn't flood that badly during Katrina, but it was never reopened.
1: Oh, it was, that was, it's like they say, that's fighting words, really. You know, well, charity isn't coming back. Well, what are you going to do? Eventually, a new hospital was built down the street, and Alice was let go. I was given, as they say, my walking papers. I was told that after 19 and a half years working at Charity Hospital, my services were no longer needed.
0: Definitely a a powerful clip there that, you know, showcases um, what happened um, to the people in New Orleans. And I'm curious to talk a little bit more about why uh, you felt like this was the right story to tell and why this was the right story to tell right now. Um, From the strategic perspective, Jillian, if you can talk about uh, how you decided that Uh, this would work for what the Atlantic is doing this year?
2: Yeah, so when it comes to what we are doing this year and what we're thinking about in the future, as I said before, we're thinking a lot about how we tell stories more generally. We've been telling stories in magazine form for a really long time, 10 or 15 years ago, we made the big shift to telling them um, on the web and figuring out how those things intersect. Um, we've told them on video and we've told them on podcasts. And I think the thing that we want, the thing that I want from um, our, from my department, which is the special projects department, which now houses podcasts, which is wonderful and I'm so excited about, um, is this idea of an atlantic story, a story that we would want to tell is a story that we want to tell. It's almost platform agnostic. Um, so it's a story that has all of the makings of what makes something atlantic for us. It has, It's character driven. It's narrative. We have someone to tell it beautifully. It has depth and nuance and complexity. Um, it weaves together the strands of all of the things that we're trying to figure out and allows us to analyze them in a way that hopefully opens your eyes up to something new. And there are myriad ways to do that and I think that last part is probably the newest angle for us that there are myriad ways to do that. So when Catherine and Van had this conversation about Doing a podcast doing it on Katrina and I think everyone probably knows there was just a large Katrina anniversary that passed um, in August. you kind of have the confluence of all of those things at once right you have this incredible executive producer and Catherine who has done this again and again and again and who knows how to tell those stories on audio you have Van who has been covering these issues um, for such a long time in a myriad of different ways on a bunch of different teams and who has experience with the actual Visceral experience of flooding, flooding in black communities and flooding in the south and what that does and the stark inequality that exists for the aid that people get um, When you are poor and black and in the south and there is a natural disaster, but a natural disaster that is greatly exacerbated by lack of appropriate response. so for us all of those things kind of culminated in this is a chance to take a big shot with all of the right folks all the right players in place to tell the exact type of story we want to tell and to tell it in a different format than we might have been able to six years ago or 10 years ago certainly um and i think you hear in that clip Um, the things that you wouldn't necessarily be able to get in a 10,000 word piece, right? You hear the emotion in her voice. You hear kind of her voice catching, you hear her telling you with pauses what it smelled like in the house when she went back and you're able to go on that journey and visualize it. Um, And then you have, as Catherine said, the guide in Van who is weaving that together and helping you understand the background context. So you feel really situated in the moment, um, and that is both hard to do in audio, but it's really hard to do something like that, especially the scene setting and the emotional dressing um, in words. So. I think a story like this where people think they know the story they think they understand what happened during Katrina but this was an opportunity to really give people this visceral experience of it to really hear from people who were not talked to before let people tell the story in their own words particularly the story of the aftermath to hear their voices hear their emotion and hear what's happened to them since Um, so for us again it just like was all of those pieces kind of Wrapped up in a bow, if all and all we had to do was say yes to it and invest in it um, and give it the time and the space to flourish.
0: I know when I was listening to it, um, there, I at the time of Hurricane Katrina, you know, I was in college and I just remember all of the things that I saw on the news, but just hearing um, there was a, a character, uh, a someone's story that you told in this podcast, and she was 14 or a teenager at the time that it happened, and just hearing her tell her story. You know, about like she just wanted to go hang out with her boyfriend and you know what that experience was like for her just brought me right back to, you know, being a teenager and feeling those things myself and not being able to imagine um, having to go through what she went through and it just, you know, brought tears to my eyes when I, I listened to um, what her experience was. Um, Leisha, I'm I'm curious if you can also talk about why you chose to explore this topic right now, and why you felt that this story needed to be told at Southern Poverty Law Center.
1: Thank you for that. Well, as I mentioned, the Southern Poverty Law Center monitors hate and extremism groups and individuals. And what we've noticed over the last decade or so is an extreme kind of increase or rise in white nationalism. And as we see that, we also see an an increase in the number of individuals who are becoming radicalized by white nationalism and just kind of feeding the white supremacy pipeline. And so we thought, well, maybe the information that we're getting out about this, this threat to our democracy, this increase in white nationalism, maybe we need to get that to a different audience. And how can we get... How can we get the word out that this that this is happening and, and more importantly, how can we get people to pay attention and, and begin to dismantle and disrupt it? So the, the, the clip that you heard was about the high school, but prior to that, the episode prior to that was about a young white woman who that tells her story about how she became radicalized, how she came to join a white supremacy group. And we have a lot of information about how that happens, what happened. Um, once she was in, and most importantly, how she came to a place of recognizing that she needed to leave. So those stories, we feel like those stories are rarely told, and it's hard to convey the kind of the the emotional journey um, that someone goes through when they experience that kind of radicalization. And in our attempt to push back on, on white nationalism and white supremacy, we found that it's in it's to our advantage to tell the story about what happens within within white supremacy movements in, in an attempt to keep people from joining. So that was that was one of the primary motivations for it. And it's still it's still continuing. We're trying to constantly trying to figure out how to how to raise the alarm, how to get people's attention about this very real threat that's facing us right now. There's so much going on and there's so much, um, there's so much to get through. Um, and, and, and that is certainly not to say that there's, there are not a lot of competing um, interests and in things that we can and should be concerned about. Uh, so this is just one, one of many that we want to find a way to break through and tell this story. And that's why we, we went with this, this particular format.
0: Um, You know, both of you talked a little bit about why this format and and Catherine, you have been working with podcasts, um, you know, not just with this one, but for, for several years. Can you talk a little bit about Um, the inherent advantages that audio storytelling has in effectively capturing and amplifying stories from vulnerable and marginalized communities, um, especially in a way different from long-form articles like Julia mentioned earlier um, or explainer videos can do.
3: Sure, sure. Like I said, I think, you know, people always talk about the intimacy of audio and it's hard to explain. I, I feel like I've never come up with a great you know, explanation for why that is. Um, But it's true, it's, I think a lot of it is about, you know, people are often listening alone and there's often a single voice and there's just a kind of connection there. It's kind of like a some version of a a long phone call with a friend or something, you know, like sometimes that can be even more intimate and rewarding than seeing them in person in a strange way. So um, I think part of it is just that there's this intimacy that, lowers your guard, uh, I think, and helps you receive a story as a listener. Um, The other thing for stories about marginalized communities, I mean, it was, it's really, so often stories are told about um, these communities and not by these communities. And I think, um, although we had a guide in Van, part of our goal when we set out at the beginning, we were like, if we can be out of the story as much as possible and have it told by the people who lived it, that is our goal. Um, And we ended up exploring in the podcast, you know, some of the ways that media coverage had distorted reality and actually caused harm. So, uh, uh, you know, it's all in how you do it. (laughs) You could create a podcast that, that made the same errors for sure, but just being able to hear something from the person themselves without a lot of, um, in video, you know, without a lot of like other distracting elements and also um, without writing kind of getting in the way of them just telling their story. Um, that's a, the, the main reasons that I think audio is, is a wonderful format for this kind of story.
0: Well, I I definitely want to spend some time getting questions from everyone, but wanted to uh, hit on some key things that, you know, we discussed today. And and these are great uh, tips that you guys have shared along the way, Um, you know, talking about getting the organization involved. I know, Lisa, that was huge for you. Having a clear goal and making sure that um, there are specific questions that you can ask before you even get started. Um, Is it, is it? You know the right format. Uh, why are you using this format? Is it to garner a huge audience, or is it one that's really focused on primarily um, a, a small audience but a dedicated, uh, you know, subset and specific audience? Um, getting an expert. Both uh, both of you guys talked about that, uh, Catherine and Alicia, and, and having someone that is an expert in this and uh, talking about. Do you have the necessary resources and skill setting Capacity, uh, capacity to do this work and not just do it, but do it really good um and then also considering the format so um, is it the best format for the story you want to tell or would this really be better served in, in another way and then what's the style that will really suit the the story best is it a long-form narrative is it a casual conversation um, one of the things that i heard uh when we chatted about this before that Lisa, that um and also catherine you both talked about is the importance of Picking the right narrative voice, so you know, don't just go to the most senior leader or the top expert, um, and and really think about who is an engaging speaker, who who is actually a curious listener. Um, I think that that was a, a great a great tip to share. So we'll move over to questions. Uh, we've got a couple here. Uh, if you have any others, please add them to the Q and A box. Um, a couple of questions around budget here um, surfaced. Uh, Lisha, you talked about budget uh, briefly, um, but can you talk a little bit more? Is it possible to create a high quality podcast pilot with little to no budgets? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts there. Um, and, and also uh, Catherine and Jillian as well.
1: I think it's it's near impossible. I mean, if, if you have, um, if, if you don't have the budget, I would encourage you to reach out to um, partners and you know seek out in- kind contributions and support and maybe you know you could find a partner who could help you make a, a short pilot that you can then pitch um, and do some fundraising around If you want a quality project it is going to it is going to cost some money. We really did look at we switched out out our print um, two issues of a print magazine and used the budget that we would have spent for that on the podcast. So that's how, that's how we were able to do it. It's a determining where you want to direct your resources.
0: That's great. Uh, we also had a question around uh, what should a small nonprofit expect to spend on a narrative podcast? Um, if you have any thoughts there, Alicia too.
1: You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I think, Catherine, I would, I would look to you. Maybe, maybe you have some idea. I know, I know what we spent, but I don't know if that's, if that's typical. So
3: I mean, it's so variable depending on what you're doing, but I would say anywhere from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands is, uh, is possible for these kinds of stories.
0: Another one about the what's the bare minimum kind of a what's what's the bare minimum to get started? I, I think just resources or, or capacity. Um, any thoughts on what what do you need to get started? Go ahead, Jill.
2: I, I was I was going to quickly say I mean a huge part of this part of the reason it's so variable is because it depends on what you actually do have in house, right? So a thing that we already had in house when we were ready to start Katrina that was different than when we were ready to start podcasting in general was Catherine. Um, we had her on board, we had our expert, we had our EP. If we did not have Catherine and what we had was a writer with an idea, you know, that would have been a different expense that we would have to think about. What we did not have necessarily was the production capacity. We needed to figure out reporters. We had travel budget, we had all... So a lot of it really matters on like, what is the story you're trying to tell? What resources do you have in house? Are those the right resources to use? And then there's obviously a lot of the technical questions, right? Like, do you actually have the equipment necessary? Do you... So we had, for instance, a recording studio already where we knew that we could go um, or we could cut tape, where we could do reporting, where we could do voiceovers, things like that. Those were already in house. Um, but if you don't have those, you may need to add in studio rental fees. You may need to hire a host We had a host who happened to be on staff. Um, So there's kind of the checklist of all the things you need, and then there's also the question of, you know, if we had been doing this about something that happened in DC, we would have had a significantly different budget because of travel um, and the amount of time that Van and the team had to spend in New Orleans. Um, So all of those things were things that we had to account for, but there were myriad things that we didn't. Um, So it really is hard to kind of pin down a number, as Catherine said, it could be tens of thousands of dollars, assuming that you have a decent amount of that on staff. And what you're trying to do is like get through the production of the thing. But if you're really building an entire podcast operation from scratch, you have no host, you have no production, you have no tools, you have to travel to tell the story, you need a reporter, you need a host, um, you need all of those things. Like I. If I were doing the budget on that, and sometimes this is my responsibility with Catherine to figure out how much does the thing cost so we can go try and find that money. If I were trying to do this absolutely from scratch, it would be hundreds of thousands that I would be seeking.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And I think that you know, there's an important point that Alicia that, that you made around you had to shelve, You know two big projects in order to do this so I think it goes back again to that um, what is your editorial strategy what's your distribution strategy Um, you know do you have something that um, you should put aside specifically for this because it lends to your goals it lends to the story that you're telling or that needs to be told right now in a way that someone else is not doing it um, so going back to, before you start down that road, think about your overall strategy, your editorial strategy, your distribution strategy. And if this is really the right format for you to do, because you know there's gonna be a high level of investment. There's also time. I mean, you guys, how long did it take you? I know you, you said you've been working on uh, Floodlines for years. Leisha, how long did it take you to uh, create the podcast?
1: We started talking about this two years ago, really. So, so to that that until this time, and when we finally when it finally launched, I could hardly I could hardly believe it. But I appreciate what you were saying, Jillian, about the different budget line items. It's certainly true, and because what, what, we had nothing but kind of the background and the story and the will to want to do it. One of the things we did learn, though, um, you know, with COVID, is that our travel plans. You know, we 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 got some money back from that, and then we learned that with that, oh, maybe we don't need to travel. Just as just as we're learning. Kind of universally, um, maybe you don't need to travel, and maybe you don't need a studio. If there was enough that was high quality, and maybe there were some other ways that we, we were forced to be able to do it over the phone. So I think I think that I wouldn't. I, I mean, I don't want to discourage anyone from stopping um, to try to try to do this effort. I, I guess I want to go back to my thing around getting support from from people, experts, you know, Atlantic, NPR, whoever. That can help you um, at least come up with a, a a quality pilot, so that you can. And I'm speaking to nonprofits now, so that you can, you know, pitch it and and do some fundraising to to get the funding that you really need. So don't be discouraged from from the high price tag. And it's 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 not dissimilar to the fundraising that you would do for any kind of project or initiative. Yeah.
0: Uh, if you, this is a question here. If you did, if you don't have the in-house capacity available, is it best to hire an agency to assist? Any recommendations for agencies that do this well? Did you guys work with an agency on on that no, part I of it? The- yeah.
1: I have well. no idea. I didn't yes. know there were agencies. It's not
0: as an agency that works on helping people. Um, so definitely putting a, a, a bug out there. Um, but yeah, certainly um, I don't think uh, having, to Alicia's to point, that, you know, talking with people, doing some um, inter, interviews, um, informational interviews with people who have done it well, who've accomplished it, and um, can give you some of that before you get started. That's, I think that's a great first step. Um, what things didn't work with these projects? I love this question. What would you do differently next time? We just had our sort of uh,
3: debrief. And so I can uh, say some of the things that, that we uh, kind of learned and are gonna put into practice when we, when we do this again. I think we spent too long trying to figure out the story ourselves without our local partner. Um, that's one one thing I would say, and that I could imagine would be applicable to a lot of different topics and stories is we we were educating ourselves um, on a lot of the nuance at the same time we were trying to, to make it. And we could have saved ourselves a lot of time by bringing on an expert um, in the subject matter earlier on. Uh, so that was one big one that we, we talked about um yeah that was the one that might be applicable to everyone
1: we haven't had our debrief yet so thanks for reminding me Catherine we totally need to do that (laughs) um one of the things that that I'm going to bring to it is I don't think we thought about it at the end in terms of um kind of advertising and getting subscribers like we're just all like oh my gosh doing this thing and, and then we hear it and it's exciting but then you have to get people to listen, to subscribe. And, and I don't, we didn't, we didn't, I think we dropped the ball on that. I think that, you know, we mistakenly thought that, oh, the audience that we had kind of with our print publication would just follow us. And, mm-hmm. and that's just not true. It's a little, they, There's another step to get people to, to know that you have a podcast and get them to subscribe and then listen. Um, so that, I think that it, we shouldn't be surprised, but we were. Um, you know, I think we just thought it was just going to automatically happen.
0: (laughs) Um, another question, what are your recommendations for finding and using good archival audio? That's a great question.
3: We spent a ton of time on this, uh, for floodlines because a lot of our work, you know, a lot of the story was about how the media covered it um there are certain sources if you're just starting out for archival audio um archive.org has a lot of public domain stuff um historical archival things if you're just kind of looking to create some texture um of a historical event you might try there there's it's called the prelinger archives i think um has a lot of public domain um archival audio we ended up for uh, floodlines needing uh, to go back into the kind of TV archives, which, um, you know, the cable news archives of 2005, which is actually sort of before everything was automatically online. Um, so we ended up in media libraries, um, and we actually had an archival uh, researcher um, who was a producer on staff, but we kind of put someone in charge of archival research, and it was a big lift. Um, but yeah, media, media libraries, but the uh, nice place to start is like YouTube and archive.org.
0: How were you able to get people to listen to the podcast? So Alicia, you, you said that was something that you would have done differently and thought more about upfront. Um, Jillian or Catherine, I wonder if you have a, a bit more um, thoughts around how that worked out well for you.
2: Um, Catherine can probably add more texture to this but when Alicia was talking earlier it kind of made me laugh because the marketing and promotion and thinking through that strategy is such a huge part of what happens almost as soon as you decide to green light a podcast. Um, You should absolutely not assume that the audience that you have in any other capacity is going to follow you to your podcast um, and you have to make it really, if that's what you want, you have to make it really, really, really clear to them why they might do that. But you also have to accept the idea that the ways that people consume you and enjoy you um, otherwise might be different and you may have to find a new audience, right? The people who enjoy sitting on their couch with the Atlantic Magazine May have never listened to a podcast in their life. So even if they know the Atlantic has a podcast, it might be really, really hard to get them to go there. Conversely, there may be people who have never read the Atlantic in uh, actual paperback, but love podcasts and are like, oh my gosh, floodlines is extremely my jam, but it means that they don't necessarily have the fluency with our brand and we need to reach out to them and find them. So having an audience strategy of like, who do we think the listeners might be a promotion strategy to make sure people we knew we had the podcast when new episodes went up, um, what it was about, why it was such a big deal. And then being able to market and really track and think through all of those things is something that we try and do almost as soon as we start putting a podcast together. Um, and it, takes a ton of work and effort um, and takes a ton of Catherine's time. In addition, you know, Catherine is not just making the podcast and thinking about those things. She's also thinking about all of this with me and some of our business side partners. So it's just, it's a huge part of what we do. Um, But Catherine, you may have more specific things on Floodlines.
3: Yeah, I mean, I would say um, one of the, one of the reasons that we do audio in general is to reach people who may not already know us. So um, uh, I view that as a, you know, it's a a logistical hurdle, but that is the opportunity a lot of times for audio. Um, I would say, you know, a a big thing that is helpful is just talking to the platforms you're gonna put it on, like Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, they all have contacts there and ways to pitch for promotion. And that's um, a free way to uh, potentially get some attention there. And that really does make a difference. Um, Other things to think about are, cross promos, this is another kind of free way you can uh, promote your podcast, but you basically can look into trading ad spots with other shows, you know, like we'll introduce our show to your audience and you can introduce your show to our audience. So we did plenty of that. And then there are many paid ways obviously to market um, and to do the same things, but those are the, the places to start on your uh, marketing strategy.
0: That's great. I think a cornerstone of everything you, you talked a lot about that Jillian is uh, understanding your audience and really doing that audience research before you go down a path of determining if you want to do a podcast or you want to start a newsletter. Um, the The big thing before you create anything is to really understand your audience, understand their behaviors, understand what motivates them and what is going to have them come specifically to you? I think that, um, you know, often, uh, you know, you want to jump on the, the trend or the bandwagon of uh, let's do Instagram now, let's have, you know, newsletters are big, we have to do a newsletter. Now it's podcasts. Um, but really, what is it that your audience is coming to you specifically for? A- and what do they need from you? And then what are you trying to activate in them? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to motivate people to uh, to, to do something specifically? And then and aligning your strategy and your platforms and your channels to that—that that should truly be your 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 cornerstone—is understanding your audience and doing that research. Looks like we have time for one <laughs> <My> last question. <laughs> um, do you always use composers, or is there decent music available out there? Good question to end with. Uh, I can jump in. We.
3: For Floodlines, we did use, uh, well, we licensed music uh, from from a musician, and we also had a sound designer who did a little bit of composition. So, um, we, that's the way we did it on that, but I have done it many different ways. There are music libraries specifically made for podcasts um, uh, that, you know, are relatively affordable, and, you know, you can search by you know, tone and instrumentation and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's, there are several, uh, off the top of my head, audio network is one I've used before, but there, there are many, um, so I would say that's a great place to start. Um, if you want, it depends on what you're going for. If you're just looking to create a little texture and a little bit of, you know, uh, sort of tonal guidance, uh, all these music libraries are great. If you want a very kind of, um, Hyper designed sound that's very specific to the story you're telling, a composer is a great way to go, but depends on your budget, of course.
0: Thank you so much. I know we're just at time. Um, I just really wanted to thank the Communications Network for uh, being having this amazing conference and doing this all virtually this year. I was in Austin last year, and I know I was a little skeptical about, you know, missing the opportunity to Uh, communicate and to be there in person. But this has been amazing. Thank you so much, ComNet. Thank you to my wonderful panelists here today, Leisha Brooks, Catherine Wells, and Jillian White, you have been um, so helpful in sharing your experience and the experience of your teams. Thank you so much for all of the information you have shared today. Thank you all for joining us. I'm so grateful to have all of the questions and the chat. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. And uh, everyone, be safe, be well, and take care out there. Thank you so much. This was really, really lovely. Thank you.